you almost know that no one is going to rerun your experiment or re-verify the results after it's published. So the chances or the danger of being caught is very small. This is Parsing Science, the unpublished stories behind the world's most compelling science as told by the researchers themselves. I'm Ryan Watkins. And I'm Doug Lay. With the rise of the internet, marketers have increasingly turned to online experiments to inform their decisions, such as testing one version of a website against another in order to determine which leads to the desired consumer interactions with their site. Today, in episode 43 of Parsing Science, we'll talk with Ron Berman from the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School about his research into how, intentionally or not, marketers are manipulating statistical processes and potentially costing their businesses millions in revenue. Here's Ron Berman. So hi, I'm Ron Berman. I'm an assistant professor of marketing here in the Wharton School. So I grew up in Israel, and in my background, I used to do software development. In my undergrad, I studied physics and computer science. After that, I I spent quite a lengthy military service where I did software development. And after that, I went to work for a venture capital firm in Israel. So a lot of the time I was spending at looking at startups and trying to analyze startups and understand what makes startups successful more for an investment perspective. But kind of quickly I realized uh, many startups seem to be failing just taking their products to the market or engaging with customers. And historically, I was always pretty much interested in academic research. So I decided to apply to to various PhD programs. I was admitted to the Berkeley uh, PhD program in marketing. So that's the Haskell of Business. During my PhD there, I interacted with uh, a few companies in the Bay Area where my research was about uh, online advertising and also how companies can measure the effectiveness of the advertising and how companies can optimize their advertising effectiveness. So it's it's very quantitative oriented. It's a lot of data analysis and a lot of game theory. This is what I specialize in. Um, and at Wharton, I'm one of a few professors that researches digital marketing. I also teach the digital marketing course here. Kind of this is what I do. Though it is often cited that 90% of technology startup businesses fail, a 2017 analysis by Fortune magazine estimated that the actual is closer to 80%. Ron has worked with many startups over the years, and we started the conversation by asking how those experiences led him to do research and marketing. Historically in Israel, engineers and generally companies are much more technically oriented. So the focus is going to be more about problem solving, getting a product that will solve the problem. And it's historically, this has been changing slowly, less about product packaging, getting it to the market, having consumers use it and improving over time. And I think uh, this has changed dramatically since I arrived at Wharton, kind of my view of how things should be done. I see many more companies now. I see what makes companies successful. And it's not necessarily the companies that have the best technology. It's usually the companies that have the best mixture of somewhere between technology, packaging of the product and customer service, and need. So you don't necessarily need the biggest need. You don't necessarily need the best technology. You need some kind of optimal mishmash between of those to succeed. And if if you come to my digital marketing class today, a lot of the focus will be about, I don't know, finding out what consumers want or trying to understand from data, how can you make the product better? And not necessarily, how can I develop the, the best solution to some problem that maybe no one has? So that has changed dramatically from my days in Israel. Comparing differences between two groups sampled from a larger population is nothing new. But what is new is the scale on which organizations are using these experiments, as well as the number of consumers comprising those groups. 
To understand how it's grown in recent years, we asked Ron to describe the history of A-B testing in marketing research. First of all, it wasn't called A-B testing, of course, until this recent trend. It was just called running an experiment or experimentation, or sometimes they would use the, that's called the scientific term of a randomized control trial, because a lot of it came from clinical trials or operations research trials and was just applied to marketing. A few early examples I know is TV advertising. So there's papers or research from the 90s. Cable companies were starting to be able to show different ads to different zip codes. And what they could do is they could say during this, I don't know, show, let's say at 7 p.m. to 8 p.m., this zip code will see these ads and the other zip code will see the other ads. And through randomization of who in those zip codes see these ads, we maybe can measure the effectiveness of, of advertising on TV. And there are very, very famous papers, mid early to mid-90s, that were running hundreds of these ads and showing either it's very hard to measure the effectiveness or the effectiveness is basically zero. You run a very, very expensive TV campaign, and in the end, you can't really tell, at least statistically, if you've made money or not. And this has been kind of a well-known result or a well-known issue in marketing for probably 30 or 40 years. Uh, this is one type of experiment. The second one was in grocery stores. They would, you know, randomize within a chain. Some grocery stores would have a discount for a product and some wouldn't. Or some stores would have a promotion at the beginning of like the entrance to the store and some wouldn't. And then because customers are using loyalty cards, you can kind of track them and see if they buy the product or not. It's called the scanner panel data analysis. This is also late 80s, early 90s people were starting to run these experiments. And most of the results we're getting is that unless the campaign was extremely, extremely, extremely powerful and successful, even if you ran experiments with thousands of customers, it was very hard to say what is the effect. And then when we moved online, part of the solution and the problem was that it was so easy to run experiments now, people started experimenting with everything, but also as a result, it means you're experimenting with smaller and smaller effectiveness of campaigns. So because it's so easy to run an experiment, you don't think very deeply, oh, is this going to make a big impact or not? I'm just going to try it. I'm just going to try it. As a result, it means most of the experiments you're running are probably even going to be less effective than what you had in TV or grocery stores, which means you need much bigger samples and it's even harder to find effectiveness. So because it's so easy and it's so inexpensive to run an experiment, you can experiment with everything, but it means actually most of the time you find more and more of no results. And this is kind of was a bit of a background for this research. It became very, very popular to run A-B tests, but no one has actually looked so much about what people do with the results or the results effective, et cetera, et cetera. So we're kind of the second wave. First wave was how do we, we run experiments online and how can we make them cheaper? And now we're looking, but what are the results that people are finding and, and do we learn more about marketing that we've learned before? Ron and his team studied how marketers and businesses may manipulate the processes of statistical analysis during A-B testing in order to get statistically significant findings. This is commonly called p-hacking, and we first discussed p-hacking in academic research during our conversations with Brian Nosek and Tim Harrington in episodes 7 and 8 of Parsing Science. Until reading Ron's article, we were unaware of parallel p-hacking in businesses. Here, Ron explains how p-hacking has become a problem in marketing research. For example, in marketing departments, uh, you have a lot of people that do what we call consumer behavior research. So they actually put people in labs, and run a lab experiment on them. So the experiment might be playing a game, like a game theoretic game with one another to see how they make decisions. 
in the end, you know, all of these experiments have data that needs to be analyzed. And usually it's analyzed using statistical software. And everyone pays attention to the statistical results. But um, until this p-hacking thing came into play, not that many people, I think, who were running the experiments could describe the true process that went on during the statistics and when it is okay to use these results to make a conclusion or not. Uh, a very simple example is kind of everyone knows that a result needs to be significant to indicate that there's probably an effect. But I once talked to a researcher who told me, until someone showed me in a simulation that you shouldn't run your experiment until you get the p-value below something, I kind of knew it's not okay, right? Like people told me in class and I knew it will inflate the type 1 error I have. But, you know, I told myself, okay, if the type 1 error needs to be 5%, so the amount of mistakes I do is 5%, and this inflation goes to 7%, I'm probably okay. Until someone showed me a simulation and I realized it's going to go from 5% to 55%, which means most of the time I'm making a mistake, then I realized I really need to be careful about how I not only apply the statistics, but which data I collect, etc. And we're talking about probably until about 10 years ago, this was the prevalent phenomenon, right? We're teaching everyone how to use the tools, but not exactly when they should be careful or not with this data. So I think even that in academia, where people are experts on the topic, was an issue. So the, the story we had originally thought of is, is kind of we knew this p-hacking was going in academia. And, and part of the reason it was going in academia was because of the incentives that academics have to publish papers. And you almost know that no one is going to rerun your experiment or re-verify the results after it's published. So the chances or the danger of being caught, it's very small. But in the business world, it doesn't work like that. If, if you're running an experiment and you're selecting the worst performing treatment because of p-hacking, you're going to lose money. You're going to make a bad decision. And if you're going to make a bad decision, over time, either your company will suffer or alternatively, if you're an employee in a company, your bosses will notice, hey, you predicted 70% conversion rate for this type of website. We only get 2%. What's going on? So I think the effects of monitoring and uh, let's call it responsibility are probably, were supposed to be bigger, at least in the business world. So this was one side of, of the equation. And on the other side, we're saying, well, but we have a lot of people using these tools. We are not sure they really understand statistics. And also maybe even there, no one is going to monitor the results. You know, I ran this A-B test, took three months to implement the solution. By the time someone notices it's six months or a year later, I'm already in the main exposition. So we're interested to see how allowing people to run these A-B tests influences their decision-making, and do we observe the, the similar phenomena that we're observing in academia. To complete their research, Ron and his research team required a large data set of A-B tests and the associated behaviors of those running the tests. To get the data, they partnered with the online A-B testing service, Optimizely. Doug and I wondered how it was that they came to partner with Optimizely on this particular research. Now, Optimizely, um, it was a bit uh, a bit random or a coincidence like most research is. Um, I met uh, two of their statisticians in a conference about statistics and experiments, and they were presenting a new method they developed, which is called sequential testing. So they didn't invent sequential testing. Sequential testing is a, is a very old method from the 40s. But they adapted it to online experiments and A-B testing and made it very, very robust to p-hacking and, and other mistakes people might do. And they said, we're going to basically implement this soon. And I thought, wow, that's very cool. 
And I asked them, but do we know to say how, how big of a problem it was before you implemented it? Or how many mistakes were people doing before you implemented this solution? And they said, no, we don't know. What we do is invent tools and develop them. We usually almost don't look backwards as a startup. We only move forward. And I said, that's very interesting. I would love to work with you and hopefully get access to the data and try to estimate how much of a problem is it? What causes this problem? Maybe it's not the p-values that you display. Maybe it's something else. I think it's going to be useful for you. And of course, it's going to be an interesting research paper. So this is how it started. But there were a lot of issues, of course, with the data itself. Uh, this is private company data. Uh, there are a lot of privacy issues. Um, I didn't get to see any identifying information about the companies. So, so only the only thing I know is there's an experiment running by some user ID, which I don't know what it is. I don't really know what the experiment is about. I only know it's trying to measure clicks on some web page. And, and the amount of data is, is enormous. So about six months before they implemented this uh, new method, we picked the data from that month or experiments that started in that month and decided to, to take a look and, and try to do the analysis. So this is how this uh, project started. Collecting the data was very, very hard also. Um, it was spread over multiple servers in the company. We had to sit there for a few months to collect it and find it. So this is kind of the background for this uh, research. The P in the colloquial term p-hacking refers to a measure of statistical significance called a probability or p-value. When doing a statistical analysis to test a hypothesis, if the p-value that's obtained is under a predefined threshold set by the researcher, typically 0.05 or 5% or less, then usually they declare their results statistically significant. But researchers can hack their statistics in various ways so as to make a difference between groups seem significant when in reality it isn't. So Ryan and I were curious to learn how this kind of practice can happen in marketing departments and how Ron discovered evidence that it often does. So this is based on, on the previous academic research on p-hacking that just kind of, let's call it, defined what p-hacking is. And part of the things we saw in academia, and this is basically based mostly on, on lab experiments, is you could do a few things to get the p-value, the statistic, to the level you want. So, so one thing you can do, and, and that's let's call it somewhere between a mistake and cheating is you run the experiment until you get the p-value you want and you stop. And the reason I call it between a mistake and cheating is that if you know it's you shouldn't do it, then of course it's cheating. If you don't know, it's, it's actually a pretty intuitive mistake. They told me it's significant when the p-value is below something, so I just stop when it's there. Another way is just to run a lot of experiments like in academia, and, and you just report in the paper the ones that are significant. So you can call it a selection effect. We thought this is not relevant, and we don't know, of course, what they report to their bosses. But I think it's fine if they say we ran 10 experiments and only one made a result, and they'll say, great, so we'll just focus on this one. In academia, you said we ran 10 experiments and we just found one result. They said, oh, maybe there's no effect and you should run more experiments. So just the goal is a bit different. Um, and another way is... Let's call it picking and choosing the data. So you can start removing observations. You can start uh, slice and dice it by demographics or other things to try. And maybe say the, the effect doesn't work on everyone on average, but it does work by demographics or other things. We thought it's not relevant for Optimizely because generally the experimenter doesn't get the raw data. They send it back to Optimizely and Optimizely just reports uh, the summary statistics and, and the average 
And at least until recently, you couldn't say, oh, now show it to me just by females or just by males, or just show it to me only for the latest people in the data, etc. The only thing you saw is, is everything for the experiment. So because the platform was restricting the level of analysis you could see, we thought a lot of the other versions of PIacking are irrelevant because you just couldn't do them on that platform. Although academics can still do that once they have access to the raw data. While Ron and his team didn't investigate the individual motivations for p-hacking, Doug and I wanted to learn more about the people who typically conduct A-B marketing tests and how they may have ended up p-hacking their research. The full answer is that we don't really know in the sense that we didn't go and ask them about their background. Uh, so what we've done is we talked to our data provider, optimizely and asked them, who, who is usually your customer? Who do you usually talk to? And that actually changes a little bit between the companies. So usually if it's a technology startup very early on, usually they wouldn't have that many marketing people. It would usually be the engineers, the developers, who are, or even the founders, um, which have all sort of backgrounds, but usually, usually some background in software. They would set up their website with a few different versions and they would run this test to see which one performs the best. And because they're usually with a background in some version of engineering, they may have seen statistics. And the reason I say that, I did an undergrad in Israel in computer science, and you do not study by default statistics in computer science. You study probability, but it's a very different thing. In economics, you study statistics, like how to take data and make a decision based on it. But in computer science, historically, maybe it's changed in the past, let's say, 10 years, making decisions based on data until data science and data analytics became a thing was not a big part of computer science education. Definitely not in Israel, but I think we followed the standard thing in the US also. So this is one side of the of the equation. We have, let's call it engineers. They're good with software and numbers, but not necessarily interpreting t-statistics, hypothesis tests, etc. The other type of people who ran the experiments, I think, let's call them business people. I don't want to say marketing necessarily, but this would be people who either read somewhere or were introduced to this concept of A-B testing. Uh, they were looking for a platform that will make their life easier. Uh, they found an A-B testing platform and, and ran the tests on them. And there's two options there. Either they've seen in their education hypothesis testing, etc. But I can tell you from experience Almost everyone that took a class in it and has not used it as a tool over and over again, basically a year later doesn't remember a thing. Like they remember something, but not exactly. Or they just follow the software. The software basically tells them when it's okay to stop or when it's okay to start an experiment or what are the decisions. And they say, I trust the software to make it for me. I don't go too much into the details of the statistics. So I think generally I, I would summarize is it either people who maybe know the background but don't have a lot of experience with the technique or they just follow the software. Commonly used in economics, psychology, and marketing, game theory attempts to identify how people actually behave, which is often quite different than from how people say they behave. Game theory gives us insights into why marketing researchers might p-hack, as Ron explains after this short break. This episode is sponsored by We Share Science. When researchers are curious about what is happening in science, they go to We Share Science to explore video abstracts uploaded by other researchers. You can search their vast catalog of video abstracts to learn about the latest scientific findings, or you can share your research with the world. Whether your research is in progress or already published, at We Share Science, 
you can share your science and grow your impact. Explore the world's research at wesharescience.org. Now, back to parsing science. Here again is Ron Berman. The game theory approach is more, let's call it a state of mind or philosophical view about research. Whenever I see people do things which are weird, let's say, there are usually two possible explanations. Either they're mistaken, they just make mistakes, which is often the case. People don't understand, for example, in the p-hacking case statistics, so it's hard to make the decision. Or alternatively, people really understand the consequences, but they're trying to game the system because they have an incentive to game the system. And this is where game theory comes into play. If you understand how incentives influence people's decisions, you usually are able to look for better explanations or specific behaviors within the data to try to rule out just mistakes. So it's important because if a company wants to solve an issue they have, let's say they think people are making mistakes with statistics, then the obvious solution will be, we'll give them better statistics, so better understanding of statistics. But if people are trying to game the statistics, you need a very different solution. You need to somehow help them be unable to game the system, or basically you need to correct for their ability to game the system with their statistics. Given that in businesses, the conscious or unconscious manipulation of A-B market testing might lead to poor decisions with very real negative financial consequences, Doug and I were interested in how Ron's research addressed the potential costs associated with p-hacking. So part of the question we're trying to say is, you know, not only do people make these mistakes and, and stop prematurely or incorrectly, We're also in this paper trying to say how bad of an issue is it? Because I'll give you an example. Suppose I'm running this experiment, I p-hack, but in the end, the effects are so close, the effect doesn't matter if I choose A or B. Then p-hacking doesn't have a cost. It has an issue about making correct decisions, but no cost in in loss of of revenue, basically. So what we're trying to think of is what are two potential decisions that people might make as a result of an incorrect A-B test or incorrectly stopped A-B test? So one we said is commission. So suppose I ran an experiment um, to test the increased sales of giving four-day free shipping versus two-day free shipping. And clearly two-day free shipping is very expensive and it's harder to implement. So I ran this test and I ran it on a smaller population. And because I p-hacked, it seems like the the potential increase of revenue from two-day free shipping is going to be way more than the cost of it. The cost of commission is actually now going and deploying all of these solutions to everyone. There's going to be a very high fixed cost to that. I need to set up my logistics. I need to set up my website, etc., to supply two-day free shipping. And of course, there's going to be ongoing cost of giving everyone faster free shipping, although the increase in revenue is not that. So this is one problem. We don't really estimate the cost of that because we don't really know what experiments people are running, but this is the cost of commission. The other cost, and this is what we would call the opportunity cost, is that if you p-hack your experiment and let's say incorrectly conclude that A is better than B, although A is worse than B or equal to B, then what you're foregoing is running another experiment that probabilistically will get you some positive impact. Again, if, if, if you stopped earlier and just moved to the next experiment or you just said, oh, this experiment gives me no result, I'll move to the next experiment, you could have gotten the benefit from just another random experiment. So what we did there is we took the distribution of effect sizes we have and tried to say, suppose now I ran another experiment. What would be the expected value or expected increase in lift if I just run another experiment and implemented 
a positive result, anyone, not just the significant ones, just any positive result. Um, and the answer there is that you get a lift increase of about almost 2% uh, when they firm correctly. The median in the paper is about 11%. If uh, a random experiment would have gotten you initially 11%, but some of these results would have given you negative and some positive because of p-hacking, if you were a bit more careful and didn't p-hack and just ran a second experiment, you could improve this 11% to 13%. So we think it's actually a pretty big increase um, in the value of experiments that you're foregoing by uh, omitting, basically, the second experiment. Improving the quality of both academic and marketing research requires that we're much more informed about and diligent in the proper use of the statistical tools that are available. So Ron explains next how researchers can address the problems of p-hacking. There's a few solutions kind of we advocate and we talk about, but it changes a little bit based on context. So if it's a lab experiment, you would see they actually use dramatically larger sample sizes today. If in the past you could publish a paper where you had, I don't know, 40 subjects taking a test or even 100 subjects, today you would probably not see a paper with less than a few hundred and multiple experiments to try to attack the same phenomenon from different angles. So the requirement for robustness is it's much, much larger. It became such an issue that I remember I, I was sitting in in a seminar talk and, and I saw a presentation and, and my comment was, look, I think the effect is there, but it's very small. So do we even care if the effect is so small? You know, from a marketing perspective, the companies wouldn't care. And one of my colleagues told me, actually, finally we see a true effect so that's even better <laughs> because if you see such if you see only kind of surprising big effects but with small sample sizes and, and not a lot of experiments i don't know what to trust so i prefer to see smaller effects that i know have been discovered very carefully so this is about lab experiments with online data i think we again have a kind of a curse of riches we can run almost as large sample size as we want to run and it's more of a question of which question do you want to focus on and what I advocate to students is don't try to look for significance, try to look for important effects. If the effect is important, it will be significant. If it's a tiny, 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 tiny effect that will tell us something about some behavior in a very small part of the population, unless behaviorally or psychologically it's very important or interesting to explain, I would just try to look for big effects. But, but it's hard. Basically, it's, a, it's become harder and harder to find more and more results uh, empirically. People new to data science are often surprised by how much work goes into cleaning a data set prior to crunching the numbers. As some of the data Ron and his team acquired couldn't be used in the study, Brian and I asked how he and his team differentiated data that would go into their analyses from that which wouldn't. The data we wanted to include is people who behave on the platform by the book. And, and I'll say what, what means by the book. So the way that the platform works is they don't run the experiment directly. You, you set up your own website and you set up JavaScript links to the Optimizely platform that does the counting and the delivery of web pages. So for example, suppose I'm the Wharton website, I wanna try two uh, versions of my site. I would get from Optimizely a small script to embed in my web page. And every time a consumer comes to the Wharton website, the script will call the Optimizely software that will return back show version A or show version B. And the script would also count responses and send it back to Optimizely. Now, because you have the split of my website and their websites, many things can 
can break in between. So for example, suppose I start running the experiment and optimize the website, but I didn't set up the Wharton website to send the data correctly, no data will be collected. So what you'll see in the data is just no visitors, no clicks, no nothing. You'll just see a sequence of zeros. A lot of experiments were like that, people not setting up the experiment correctly. Um, another thing that Optimizely and, and any other companies recommend that you do is to set up something called an AA test. So you set up this web page with exactly the same two results, and you let the platform randomize between those exact two same results. The platform doesn't know. And in the long run, you expect to see the statistics converge to the same thing in the end. And this says that the platform is working well and the setup is working well. In the data, what it means is you see them launching the same page and same version again and again and again. All of the data is multiplied. We also saw that, and of course, we removed the AA tests. And then finally, we had just some people doing strange things. So for example, you would see an experiment running, running, running. It wouldn't end in the system, and then suddenly all of the data goes to zero. So no visits, nothing. It just means someone removed the script from their own website and effectively stopped the experiment. But what we don't know if it's a stop experiment because it was a bug in the system, if they moved to something else, if they just wanted to stop, etc. So what we decided to do is we'll say, okay, we will include only experiments that started and ended normally. They, they have data from starting in the first few days of the experiment. So, you know, it didn't take them like 100 days to set up the experiment. And they have data basically all the way to the end. And the other only criterion we used was whether the company assigned them to an industry or not, this experiment, or because we wanted to do an analysis by industry. And this is how it lowered. So most of the data that was cleaned out was because people were just incorrectly or at least not normally starting and stopping experiments. Ron and his team's study wasn't intended to identify specific cheaters in the marketing research industry. Instead, their goals included determining how big of a problem p-hacking may be in marketing research as well as how organizations might create environments in which data analysts use statistical tools appropriately. To close out our conversation, Ron describes how organizations can make use of his study's findings to improve the quality of their decision-making. So what we're trying to do in this paper, and this is not about bad statistics, the paper is a bit bigger, saying if you give people a statistical mechanism that either they don't understand or they have an incentive to game, they will make whatever they want with this outcome and result, even though it might be incorrect or, or wrong, either because they don't understand it or alternatively because they would like to have an outcome. And it's kind of almost irrelative to which if you give them the right tool or the wrong tool, they're going to make a strategic use of the tool for their own good. And this is where the game theory comes into play. What are the goals of people running these experiments? Are the goals to say, now I know that A is better than B, or the goals to say, I created two versions of a web page and I want to implement the best one, or at least claim I implemented the best one. And I'm seeing a lot of practitioners, a lot of people in, in the business world really focusing on the statistics. Is it significant and is it not significant? And lately, kind of when I'm advocating, let's say it is significant. Was this your goal in the experiment? And usually your goal is not significance. Your goal is to maximize profit. If your goal is to maximize profit, you should think about the decision you're going to make as a result of significance. And I'll give you a very, very specific example. Suppose now you use a better statistical tool. Suppose you use this tool, you run your experiment, and the result is A is not significantly different than B. Okay, It just tells you the result is not significant. What should you do? What would people do? 
our statistical textbooks usually don't give a prescription for that. They just said it's not significant, there's no effect there. But the business people actually will make a decision. The decision might be to deploy one of them, might be to run another experiment, might be to say experimentation is not working, although it's not experimentation's problem. It's usually the, the treatments you brought to the experimentation. So what we're trying to do with this research is to say, once you give people decision-making tools, you want to look not only at how good the tools are in determining, let's say, the true state of the world. You want to see what decisions people make given these results. And people will make raise decisions usually based on these things. But you want to have maybe a scientific way of saying we can predict what mistakes people will make and we want to help them correct them. That's kind of our goal. That was Ron Berman discussing his article, P-Hacking and False Discovery in A-B Testing, published with three other researchers on June 28, 2018 in the Open Access Repository, SSRN. You'll find a link to their paper on parsingscience.org E43, along with bonus audio and other materials we discussed during the episode. If you're interested in the latest developments in science, why not sign up for our weekly roundup of science news from across the disciplines at parsingscience.org newsletter. Or if you'd like to check out our first 25 issues first, go to parsingscience.org news. Next time on Parsing Science, we'll be joined by Laura Malden from the University of Connecticut. She'll discuss her article, Coming Out Rhetoric in Disability Studies, exploring the limits of analogy by looking at its fit with the deaf experience. There were times in which he would go back home and he would say, oh, and I had to become hard of hearing again, where I would use my voice and use what hearing I do have to kind of get along. He would talk about switching and say, oh, I had to become hard of hearing again. And then when I left, I could become deaf again. We hope that you will join us again.